this week on Dig Me Out. Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're doing a round table. We got the full complement of folks here. We got the squad together. We got the squad. And um, we're back with one of our in the 90s episodes, which we've done before. Our first one was on Van Halen. And mm-hmm. then we did one on Metallica. And then mm-hmm. we did one, which was not a round table, it was more of an interview, but we did a Tom Petty in the 90s episode basically we look at an artist who was hugely successful in the 80s or the 70s and 80s in tom petty's um case we look at an artist that was hugely successful in the 80s and see how they transitioned and adapted to the shifting cultural landscape of the 1990s and we ask whether or not they survived the 90s or whether the 90s took them down Mm. in a chokehold and brought them to the ground and snuffed out their life. Uh, that's a really dark analogy that I just went with. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I went there. In some cases, it's not that far off. The 90s no. were not kind to some bands that had previous success. So No, not at all. Ask, uh, well, I was going to say Janie Lane, but all of a sudden, I went, again, I went really dark yeah. with my uh, example there. Sorry. Rest in peace, Janie. This week, we're going to do Duran Duran, and to help us revisit this band we have a round table of veterans who are returning i'm going to start farthest east joining us from arlington massachusetts mr keith sawyer dj at 88.1 wmbr at mit in cambridge keith welcome back to the show thanks so much for having me on joining us from just north of myself and our other round table participant in the Cleveland area. I'm not sure exactly what neighborhood exactly, so we won't get specific. We'll just say Cleveland. It's a big area. It's got a lot of suburbs. Annie Zaleski, who survived 21 hours in airports and air travel over the last couple days. Um, Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations on your surviving. Did you, I hope you fleece them for some good stuff. Give you some vouchers oh, oh. or something or drink tickets? Well, we we got some food vouchers from there, and I got uh, $75 in uh, e-ticket or, or, you know, e-put-together toward a ticket. Uh, but my letter's coming. It, it's being formulated once I have some time. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and you can find Annie's writing at salon.com, Ultimate Classic Rock, Las Vegas Weekly. Any others that I'm missing? That's about it for now. Okay. <laughs> And then last, but of course not least, Mr. Chip Midnight, the man who runs Kids kids Interview Bands right here in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome. Good evening, Chip. It's it's, uh, funny, like I I talk about Van Halen, I talk about Peruca Salt, Guns N' Roses, and Duran Duran. That's kind of a pretty wide variety. It is. You are our our utility infielder. You can play any position. You've uh, schooled us on triple fast action in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yep. 
Yep. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So Duran Duran, I picked this one because they had a number of albums come out in the '90s, so it's lots of lots to talk about. But also, when you look back at what they did in the '80s, I mean, a massively successful band. They put out five. Formed in 1978, Birmingham, England. Put out five albums between 1981 and 1988. You got Duran Duran, Rio, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Notorious and Big Thing. They had 14 top 40 singles in the U.S. and two number one singles in the U.S. Now, collectively, in, in the entire history of the band, they have sold 100 million albums worldwide, which is wow. very, very elite company that have sold 100 million albums. We're here to and talk about... And then the 90s came. And then the 90s came. <laughs> And they had a really interesting trajectory in the 90s that I want to talk about. Now, I'll admit that I actually didn't know about the Big Thing album, which came out in 88. And so when I went back and listened to the first album that came out in 1990, which is called Liberty, came out in August of 90, um, I was looking on the Spotify, like, you know, discography. And I was like, what is this Big Thing album? I, I remember Notorious, but I don't remember Big Thing. So I went back and listened to that album, too. Because I think that those two albums kind of bleed into each other a little bit sonically. But I want to start with Liberty, obviously, chronologically. And there's an interesting note about this record, which is it's the first time that a Duran Duran album featured songwriting credits outside the original five members of the band. And the five members, of course, being uh, Nick Rhodes, John Taylor, Roger Taylor, Andy Taylor, and Simon LeBon. Warren how do you say his last name, people? Cucurillo. Cucurillo. And then at the, this time between, um, I think it was like 89 and 91, Sterling Campbell was the drummer. And he was Sterling was, Morrison, right? No, Sterling Campbell. He's the one Sterling who played Campbell? with Bowie and uh, B-52s and Soul Asylum. He's, yeah. he's a fabulous yeah, so drummer. He is the Soul Asylum guy. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Looking back at this record, I want to just give brief impressions going around, listening to this first record, Liberty. Um, had you listened to it when it came out is, is one thing I'd like to know. And then what are your impressions now listening back to this, knowing what came before it with the hugely successful albums in the 90s? And then what was to follow? What were your impressions of this album? I'm going to start with you, Keith, since we, we let off with you in the introductions. Yeah, well... 1990 for me was the first year I got into college radio. So looking out for new Duran Duran albums was probably really, really low as far as my interest level. So I, I don't remember this coming out. I had zero interest in, in Duran Duran whatsoever when it came out. I don't, I don't even remember it getting serviced to college radio. So you know, listening to it now, I can, I can definitely see why it, it wouldn't have been serviced to college radio. Yeah. Um, anybody want to expand on those comments, Annie or Chip? I, I was too young to listen to it. I was sort of getting back into music then, um, you know, kind of more like the more mainstream sort of like MTV stuff. And like this, this album did not register at all, <laughs> at all for me. Like it was just not on my radar at all. Playing the youth card. <laughs> Chip? It's, it's true. <laughs> So I was not a youth in 1990. <laughs> um, no, I, I was I was in college, and uh, I mean I had been a big fan in the 80s, but uh, 1990 time frame 
for me was pre alternative music. So deep into hair metal and, uh, like Keith, I, I don't remember this album coming out, um, listening to it again or listening to it. Probably. I don't, I don't know if I've listened to it in the past, but listening to it, getting prepared for this. Um, I don't remember any of those songs being on the radio at all. Like nothing sounded familiar to me on this record. Jay, I, I don't know how big your fandom is when it comes to Duran Duran. So, hmm. uh, where, where do you land on this record? Looking, listening back to it. Well, listening back to it, I think what's interesting about it is that uh, it definitely has that 80s aesthetic, right? Production-wise, it sounds like an 80s record. Like It sounds like their combination of kind of funk and pop rock. It's really crisp-sounding and sharp. Um, it, the contrast between this and then the Wedding Album that comes after it is it's a pretty good example of what the 90s did to artists i mean the con the, the sound just sonically it couldn't be more different right and by the time they get to the next record they're just the, the percussion sounds different it's you know it's it's layered it's got acoustic instruments on it it just it sounds warmer like it uh, the the difference between this record and what was to come just a couple years later is pretty stark just from a production standpoint alone I, I was going to say, I think you're you're being very kind and generous to the record. I actually really appreciate that, um, you know, because I was going to say that I think half the reason why I don't remember it is that, you know, I re-listened to it. It is not a memorable record to me. Um, yeah. You know, like I think My Antarctica is great and, you know, Violence of Summer is a really excellent song. But, you know, you can just tell that the band is kind of trying to figure out where they're going to go, how they're going to kind of, you know, put the 80s, you know, maybe kind of reconcile what they were doing in the 80s with where music was going. Um, I think maybe the lineup changes maybe caused a little bit of, wow, this is kind of different, you know. Well, how, how are these new songwriters going to kind of, you know, balance what we have? Because um, I think this is probably one of my least favorite Duran Duran records. Yeah, I, I think you'd have to put this at the bottom. And I think behind the scenes, the band just didn't really have a leader anymore with uh with both roger and andy leaving really andy one thing that comes out strong to me with this record is how much personality andy put into the band uh and with him being switched out for warren uh, it just sounds like a totally different band the other thing is the keyboards they just it doesn't sound like nick rhodes to me it sounds like somebody trying to sort of ape the you know the house or, or dance sounds of the time yeah, and I, I read a comment from uh, Simon Laban. He said at the time that they were jamming in a barn and in Sussex, and he said, oh, we've got the album done. Let's just go record it. And he said, I don't even think we got it right. I think we weren't paying attention, and um, we were too self-conscious of the way that things were going on, like what was going on around them musically, and they tried to make it sound like that, which kind of moved away from what Duran Duran was good at. Cause I think what's wrong with this record is like, it's, there's a lot of sort of mid tempo grooves and there's not a lot of hooks. 
that's what's really kind of missing. And I mean, that's what Duran Duran was known for in the nineties were just the great hooks and singles and stuff. And this song, this album seems to be seriously lacking in that department, which is kind of shocking how quickly that decline happened. But I guess they were becoming, you know, if you're over in England in the early nineties, that's when like Madchester's happening and, and, um, you know, that sort of dance and, and obviously with, you know, like acid house and, and those sorts of things happening, you're, I guess you're, maybe trying to pivot towards that, but I don't think that they really embrace it completely. So it kind of just comes off as being rather kind of bland, which is interesting because then they turn around and two years later, put out the wedding album, which is basically it's self-titled, but people refer to it as a wedding album because the debut album is, is also self-titled, um, which is weird because we just re- uh, recently did the Chip Tr- cheap trick album that came out in the nineties, which was also a self-titled album. The second one that came out, you know, from the band. Um, yep. This returned the the band basically to prominence in 1993, which if you had said 1993 was going to be the year that Duran Duran returned to prominence in the 90s, I think uh, in 1992, people would have been like, okay, sure. But they did it with two huge singles, which were Ordinary World and Come Undone. I was familiar with those. I can't say that I was real familiar with the record. Were you guys familiar with the record or was this your first time getting into it? And what were your thoughts? I'm going to start in reverse chip, the wedding album, 1993. Yep. So, uh, 93, I was writing for some local publication and getting, I somehow managed to get on the Capitol records, uh, mailing list. So I, I think I got this from, this was on Capitol, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I mean, I have a copy of the CD, so I'm pretty sure that I got it. I didn't go out and buy it when it came out, but um, it was always nice to come home. Keith has probably been through that era, and, and Annie as well. You guys too at the radio station, right? That you, you'd come and find all these nice padded envelopes when you got home from work or school. And it was Absolutely. awesome. All this free music. It was it was awesome. Um, so I I I, uh, I definitely listened to it when it came out. Um, but like you, Tim, like I I remember the singles more than I remember the rest of the record. But those singles were huge, mm-hmm. and. And it was weird because they did put out Liberty just a few years earlier, but it did feel like a comeback, like they had been gone for a long time, and when in reality they hadn't. But I don't know. I, I kind of remember that time frame. Didn't Adam Ant, that wonderful song, come out around that time too? Yeah. Like I feel like mm-hmm. both those bands kind of came out, kind of shocked everybody with like, wait a minute, these guys are 80s guys, and they both had hit singles, which, which felt kind of weird and kind of, I don't know. It was cool. But yeah, I, so I went back and listened to the whole thing again recently and, and more so than I did back when I first got it. And um, yeah, I like it a lot. I think there's some, some really good songs on it outside of the singles as well. I, I do think there was a couple songs that I I, I wrote down uh, duds. I thought yeah. I didn't like um, UMF or uh, Breath After Breath. I was Those ones I couldn't make it through. I recognize too much information. Was that a single? Yeah, that was a single. Yeah, well. I thought, yeah. that was a single, and it, I think it's interesting because I rem- remember hearing, you know, "Ordinary World" come on the radio when it first came out, and it had been rush released before the album. And I remember like basically being super impressed, rushing to the record store. All they had was the cassette single, and I bought the cassette single. You know, was listening to it in my car, and then eventually bought the album. And when I got the album, once again, it didn't. It struck me as a 
it is a 90s updating of Duran Duran. It doesn't sound all that much like Duran Duran. It sounds to me more like it's like The Cure. It's like Jesus Jones. It's like got these Beatlesque, you know, sort of segments to it, especially in Simon's vocal treatment. It's still much like Liberty. It suffers from the fact that it, it doesn't totally sound like Duran Duran, but at the same time, it, it does have an updating of their sound, if you want to call it. Yeah, and that's what I was describing with the the contrast between the two is that while I think there's some legitimately good songs on here with with some really strong hooks, there's a lot of material that's kind of wandering. The difference is at least when it wanders, it does some stuff that's, I don't know, compelling in some way, whether it be experimental or just sound sonically interesting, whereas Liberty, it just sounds like a generic like 80s like pop rock record from a production standpoint, whereas this one goes some places that at least is some new ground. You know, I think for me, I don't, I don't think I owned this record until later just because the singles were so massive. And at this point, like, I mean, you couldn't turn on MTV or VH1 without seeing Ordinary World or Come Undone. See, I think that those two especially really set Duran Duran on a new path. Like, I don't think Ordinary World sounds like anything they've ever done before. I mean, it's orchestrated. It's just, it's really, there's kind of that guitar solo. Like, it, it was it was sort of their stab at adult contemporary. Like, saying because I think that's what a lot of the 80s artists mm. were trying to do in the 90s we're kind of like all right yep. we're going to kind of grow up and do things so i think those two ones especially i mean they got played in alternative radio but also sort of more the you know the grown-up you know type of music for like their fans basically who are now kind of you know maybe in their 20s and 30s um, but what i find so interesting about this record is like i love too much information i thought that was like the best song when i was growing up i, I loved it and I re-listened to it, and now when I listen to it, I'm like, man, that is kind of like that, that kind of the cheesy like cyberpunk that was really big <laughs> at that time. Like you know how like Billy Idol had that song "Shock to the System," yeah, and like Sting did that, um, the demolition, the demolition man. I don't remember the exact year, but like it's like when all those '80s acts try to kind of update their sound a little bit. And I still love too much information. Like I still think it sounds great, but like just the production hasn't aged very well. is so interesting it's kind of like there's all sorts of little new directions they're exploring they seemed a little bit more focused on this and so but yeah that's you know it's kind of my thoughts i don't know if it was because the singles were so popular but this is one that i see in every single dollar bin i ever look in <laughs> oh, that's the I, I think they, oh totally yeah because Absolutely. maybe because the singles were so big that there were so many copies of this album out and people then then as they grew up they uh got rid of those cds how many of them say Columbia House on the back? 
<laughs> oh yeah. How much do you think this record was affected by Octoon Baby? Like, because I, I see that I think like an '80s band yeah. that took that like more serious, like a, I don't know, complex take, and they had some stuff that gets a little adult contemporary with the ballads, but then there was some funky stuff that was, you know, different and quirky from a from a sonic standpoint. Yeah, I, I think this album was purely Warren trying to prove his stuff. The I think behind the scenes, the other band members were still, they were kind of reeling from the lack of success of Liberty. And Warren was the one who, he bought Simon Le Bon's old house, he built a, a studio in it, and he basically just started recording the album there. He was like, this is my shot, this is my chance at, at uh, you know, kind of being the leader of this band. And they basically, they followed his lead. And I think that's why stylistically it does sound so 90s. I think he may may have been a little bit more in tune with what was happening, you know, in the in the music scene coming into the 90s. And he was trying to put his imprint on it, you know, and he's like, OK, let's make this sound more like, you know, the information society. I was just going to mention that there's a little bit of interesting backstory to this. The label didn't want to put this album out. It actually was shelved for a short period of time. And in that time, Warren Cucurullo wrote come undone that was not originally on the album and they had a they had like a hiatus where they were waiting for the album to be released and they started working on the next record and then he wrote he had a riff that turned into come undone and then that got added added to the album at the last minute so you're mentioning warren which their management yeah, yeah that that makes sense that his sort of direction would change the the history of the album because um it's his last minute riff that sort of helped elevate uh, the record with both the um, singles going into the top 10 in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. I do have to say, though, that like Nick Rhodes, especially I interviewed him in in the last couple of years, and he's actually always really, really good about staying current, about kind of what's interesting in production and stuff. So, you know, I'd have to look up interviews to see where he kind of was in the early 90s in terms of what he was listening to. But he has always also kind of very quietly pushed the band also modern. I mean, he said they were listening to like Tame Impala, or he was at least, and stuff like that um, around the time of like Paper Gods, which of course is kind of a really kind of hip, cool influence. So he's always kind of been their like secret tastemaker too. So I would not be surprised if some of like the more like the ridiculous keyboard stuff was definitely a little bit more kind of the stuff bubbling up from the underground at that time in the UK. There's a song on here I want to mention because it's, it's a good lead in to the next record, which is they covered Femme Fatale which was actually released as a single only in France officially. But I remember hearing that maybe it was just on college radio. Maybe some you know people played it because it was a Velvet Underground cover or whatnot. They, I, I don't know if they got the idea from recording that cover that they wanted to do a covers album. But two years later, April of 95, we get Thank You, which is an entire album of covers. And I remember when this came out because the um, White Lines was the single, I believe, the first single that was released. I think so. I'm going to have to double check that. I believe that was the first. Yeah. Or no, Perfect Day was the first single. Another Lou Lou Reed composition, which he called the best ever of my songs, the best ever cover of one of his songs. Uh Uh-huh. And then White Lines was the second single. Now, I, I thought the cover of Perfect Day was pretty good. Uh, um, apparently I'm in the minority of, well, I like that song. The Q magazine ranked this as one of the 50 worst albums ever recorded. 
and they never listened to Liberty, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The Irish Times said that the LP, when it was released, is the single worst album in the history of recorded music. So, can we, in any way, shape, or form, save this album from its abysmal critical reception? Or do you guys agree, Annie? I'll start with you. That this is one of the single worst albums ever recorded. It's funny because I remember. I think I didn't listen to the record when it came out because the you know reception was so negative, and I think I had like you know limited allowance money, so I couldn't spend money on you know something <laughs> if everyone said it was so terrible. But you know, I mean. It's not the greatest thing on earth, but it's there's certainly been worse things. I think for, you know, I, I think what a lot of the reaction was, was basically people thinking, oh, Duran Duran, you know, you shouldn't be covering all these great artists because you guys are just like a pop boy band. You know, they, they had that perception, you know, because in the 80s they were so popular and you right. know, they, you know, little, you know, they had such a young women fan base that they weren't necessarily authentic musicians. When, in fact, they had been covering David Bowie since the early 80s. And, you know, they love Lou Reed. If you listen to their music, they took a lot from these people. So I think that's a little bit hyperbole. Um, and, I mean, honestly, I kind of like their White Lines cover. And they actually started playing that again last year. When we saw them, they totally played that song. And it was a total blast. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think people were just, you know, mad that it wasn't, you know, what they wanted Duran Duran to be, or they didn't expect that. I mean, I think probably you could, you know, the spaghetti incident. I mean, that came around the same time. If you want to talk about your know, bad records, yeah, you know, bad cover records. So, you know, compare. Maybe this could have been saved if they would have avoided like some of the big artists and stayed with the stuff that was a little bit more, I don't know, lesser known. So like 911 as a joke is if that's unfortunate, like that's not a song that you should cover. <laughs> Um, Led Zeppelin, you know, we don't need another cover of Led Zeppelin, um, you know, sort of the doors, like avoiding those artists and staying with stuff that's a little more, uh, a little less familiar to folks that maybe they could put their spin on it and kind of show the influence, but then reinvent some of the songs. I don't think it's the worst, one of the worst records ever. That's kind of silly. I mean, yeah, Spaghetti Incident is much worse than this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what year did this come out? 1995. And, and those reviews were very um, of the moment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. calling it the worst album was, I'm sure, the, the kind of the cool thing to do, right? Nobody likes a Duran Duran cover album in 1995. Like, why would you? Worst album ever. But I don't think, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with everybody. Like, I don't think it's, a, it's the worst record ever. Um, but like Annie, mine wasn't so much as a, a money thing as... I've never been huge into cover albums or tribute albums like the the Kiss My Ass one or the Zeppelin tribute. Like I, I don't know. There's just something about it. Like I don't mind hearing those songs, but I have never bought any of those. So I didn't I didn't buy this at the time, but I listened to it, you know, again recently, and it's I, I don't like I said I don't think it's the worst record ever. There's there's some good stuff on it. Sometimes it doesn't sound like Duran Duran. I think that's the one of the things yeah. that makes it weird. You're like, I I, I could kind of get if you reinterpreted everything so that it's sounded like them, and then you can hear the influence through it. But some of these, like, I mean, he kind of does a Jim Morrison impression, which you know, and some of the other songs, it's hard to even tell that it's them. It just sounds like a band from the '90s playing a cover song. 
I actually think I like the 911 as a joke cover. Um, I think because it is because it, it is so yeah. different. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I think just the beat of it and giving it that little kind of um, it, it's almost kind of a, a countryish sound to it, and it, the the concept of doing that song is all wrong. You know, they, a bunch of pretty boys from England shouldn't be trying to do a song that's about you know inner inner city youths and their inability to get you know services to them. You know, they, they don't have any authenticity to it whatsoever. But I thought the musical approach to it was interesting. Yeah, I think I probably hated it when it came out. I'm, I'm fairly certain I did. And that turned <laughs> me off. From, but, but listening to it in 2017, I think it, I, I've got that many more years under my belt. You know, and, and I, I agree, Keith. I, I, I like the arrangement of it. problem with the record is it it wasn't intended to be the follow-up it was all of these covers kind of came out of when they were touring for um the wedding album like one of the big fads at the time was unplugged you know and they got invited to this k-rock unplugged and they had to basically put together unplugged arrangements in a week you know so warren picked a couple of cover songs you know and they did them and they were like okay and then they had like a show at wembley and Grandmaster Flash was there, and they were like, well, hey, why don't we both do a song together? We'll do White Lines. And they were just kind of organically coming up with these things as they were going on tour to the point where they were like, well, we could put out a covers album right after this album. And then it just languished. And then the label got involved. And then there's like three different producers and four different drummers. And, you know, the label's coming back and asking for a new, you know, cut of this thing. And that's where it, it all goes south. I know we've moved past the wedding album, but I totally forgot to mention this. Did any of you guys kind of maybe not listen to it or not pick it up as much because of the cover? Like, I, I understand the cover is, is pictures of all the, the members and their, their parents' wedding photos. But like every time I, I, I remember seeing it just from the, the cover, the way it looked, I thought it was going to be a boring album full of ballads. So like, I, I'm not a, like the, the cover turned me off of listening to it. I it's, think the, the cover the probably thank you is even worse because it's just that it, kind yeah. of pastiche of all of the the artists and Duran Duran themselves. I don't think they're even on the cover. No, no they aren't. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the strength of the singles for me of of the wedding album sold the album. You know, to yeah. me. You know, so the art direction didn't uh, didn't influence me as much. Well, in nineteen what ninety two ninety three when that came out, it wasn't the coolest thing in the world to put a band picture on the cover. Right? right. I mean, think about albums that came out that time. Uh, not very many of them had it, the bands on the front. I, I, I think they included Thank You because that was actually released also on the Encomium Tribute to Led Zeppelin. 
So they had already recorded that for that tribute album, which also yep. features like, you know, um, Stone Temple Pilots doing uh, Dancing Days, I think was one of the singles off of that. And mm-hmm. um, or some of the other. Ones. Oh, Hootie and the Blowfish doing <laughs> Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I would have to agree with the comment that I, I think that's the worst song in this record than uh, their version of Thank You, as well as the Watching the Detectives, which is just a really lazy version of that song. But actually, I, I like their version of the Crystal Ship. I like their Lay Lady Lay, and I thought they had some some decent ideas on the other songs. Um, you know, the first version of I Want to Take You Higher has that kind of, you know, that red hot chili peppers funk, you know, sound of the time. You know, I, I think, you know, once again, Boring Covers record to me is just no effort to transform the songs or do anything with them. I, I think they tried to do something with them. Sometimes they were wrongheaded. Sometimes I, I think they hit on some interesting things. I do back up Annie. I think White Lines is solid. Yeah, and that's a very good version of that as well. Yeah. You know? And they have Melly Mel on that song. And I think it's funny that he's just kind of, you know, jumping in there and doing, say rock, say freeze, you know. <laughs> now, it's a weird transition because they had a really successful studio album with the wedding album, we'll call it. It's, that's what's referred to as back in 93. Then they have this come out and it's absolutely ravaged in the press. And sends the band on a little bit of a tailspin, I guess you could say, to the point where uh, they're working on their follow-up studio record and they're not even done recording and John Taylor leaves the band. So they have basically three members of the band at this point. They have Rhodes, Laban, and Cucurulo, um, who are basically writing and recording everything with different drummers. I don't, I don't even... Let's see, who was the drummer? So Medazzaland comes out in October of 97. Yeah, and John Taylor had been doing that side project, the Neurotic Boy Outsiders, which really had distracted him and eventually led him to leave. So both, mo- a lot of what he had, I think, written had been re-recorded. I think only stuff on like four songs remained. So Medazzaland comes out, and as much trouble as they had getting the wedding album out, Medazzaland actually was even bigger of a kind of a debacle just in terms of the actual release of the record. It was never officially released physically in the UK, which I find shocking. There was no physical release. You can get it digitally now. The only physical release was in the United States and it, they did put out, well, electric Barbarella got some play made it number 52 on the hot 100 but overall, the sales were pretty sluggish. Even now, you can't like you can't get this on Spotify or Apple Music. In addition to the, um, I believe Jay was it Pop Trash that comes out in two thousand. That one also not available. Yep. Right, and those are available. Those are on a different label, right? They're on EMI Hollywood. Yeah. Whereas the stuff is on. Yeah, a... Pop Trash is Hollywood. Pop Trash is yeah. yeah. This is their last capital record. Yeah. So I got what... this one in the mail too. <laughs> so Chip, yeah. what did you think about this when you received this in the mail? I love this record. I still love it. I still listen to it a lot. I mean, well, I guess not a lot, but I'll still pull it out. I, I think it starts. The first couple songs are great. I, it definitely it's definitely a tale of two Duran Durans. I think the second half is a lot slower and a lot different sounding. But mm-hmm. um, I love the 
I don't know. It, like everything, like that's an album where the cover art to me totally succeeds. Like it kind of, kind of looks back at like the Rio cover and and messes around with it and like, you know, I I think it's they they mess up the is like got graffiti or something on it. I mean, it's like putting the past in the past, but remembering the past. And I think that the the songs on this album, how do I describe them? Are like futuristic versions of their past songs, if that makes any weird sort of sense. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I like I said, the first four or five songs I love. Yeah, I'm with Chip. I I think the first half of this record's strong. I, I particularly like uh, Out of My Mind and Who Do You Think You Are. I think those are two. I didn't anticipate uh, when I revisited this record and, and enjoyed. As it kills me where I lay, who am I to resist? Who are you to fail? Got to get you out of my mind. But I can't escape from the feeling as I try to leave the memory And then the second half, it's really the only tune I like is Michael. You've got a lot to answer for. I think the rest of it is uh, not as interesting to me. But I think the first half is pretty strong. And I think yeah, the first I know half Annie really- had mentioned earlier that uh, you know she had talked to Nick Rhodes, and I think this is the album where you can really hear his influence on the band. This, if the Wedding album was a Warren album, this is a Nick album. Yeah, and just like the Wedding album, <laughs> again, we're only talking a couple years difference, but. This one, again, seemed to me like this band rising from the dead, even though they hadn't been gone that long. You know, like this felt like they were ready to come back. And and I think we had been through, we'd gone through the early 90s of the hair metal giving way to grunge, giving way to funk, giving way to new metal. And now, like the doors were maybe back open for Duran Duran to to reemerge. I don't know if that. I don't. I don't think that really. Well, it kind of did happen to them. I mean, it kind of. Well, and, and that was the press at the time. I remember. You know, once again, I was in radio. Well, still in radio, but I was in radio at the time. And I remember when it came out, they were like, "This is the new Duran Duran. They're back." You know, they were really trying to sort of hype up that energy. Yeah. See, I I absolutely love this record. Like, kind of like what Chip said, I had this record back. I actually did buy this record on cassette, and I just like because I saw um, I loved Electric Barbarella, and then out of my mind, this song was on the Saint soundtrack which is a really great soundtrack too. It had a lot of kind of electronic music and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so I kind of heard that. I was like, oh, that's really good. But I think this record is fantastic. Like it is in my top five Duran Duran records. Actually, I think it's in my, yeah, it's in my top five Duran Duran records. And, you know, I just think there's a, it's it's such a moody record. And it's so like, it's kind of like, you know, if, if the wedding album was them kind of doing adult contemporary, this was them kind of doing their like, you know, sort of like adult angst record. Like there's definitely a lot of, it's very sophisticated and there's just kind of a lot of kind of moodiness going on. Um, like I think uh, Midnight Sun is actually one of my favorite songs on it. And that's on the second half. Like it's just a lot of kind of really interesting percussion going on with it. And it's really textured. Like I, I just think this is a fabulous record. I saw them on this tour just kind of as a side and it was actually the same day Michael Hutchins died. And so it was a really, really emotional um, concert because like the band, of course, you know, were, you know, were close with, with 
in excess and things like that. And it was a really, it was my first Duran Duran show. It was definitely an interesting introduction because they were very were they emotional still, that night. Were they still playing like arenas or big theaters? No, actually. So I saw them. It was funny. They played the, um, there's this, this thing called, and Chip probably knows about this, but it's the Lakewood Civic Auditorium, which is a high school oh, yeah. auditorium, um, which is kind of close to where I live. And back in the nineties, they did some, they still do concerts, but they do really, they did really cool concerts then. Like Morrissey played there. I saw Radiohead on Radiohead. the computer tour there. And then Duran Duran played there. And it was, I think it's like 1,800, 2,000 people. Um, so it's not very big, but it, it was definitely well attended. I do remember. Um, in, but it was, night- Yeah. In 1989, Chip Midnight graduated on that stage. In, in 1998, <laughs> I graduated on that stage. So yes, <laughs> high five! <laughs> Yay! But yeah, I, I just think I think this is fa- like I don't even know what to say about it because like I love this record and I think I I buy copies of it when I see it because I know it is hard to find. It used to be hard to find. It was out of it is out of print. Yeah. But it used to be sort of you know kind of the lost Duran Duran record. I can't believe it was never released in the UK. It says it's available in Europe as an important digital download. They they got the rights back to the record from EMI, and they must have released it independently, just there. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to the Duran Duran website, there's like a Q and A section where fans can email in questions, and then the band will answer them. And they have been specifically asked if they're going to re-release this album and Pop Trash because I guess they've you know done vinyl reissues of some other stuff or CD reissues of earlier stuff um, that was harder to find. And they said that eventually they will get to it. Um, They they just don't haven't, you know, had the time to, uh, they've been consistently putting out new records, so they just haven't had the time to get to it. Um, There's an interesting bit of uh, nineties trivia with regards to this release. And I've, I've heard this before with other bands, Jay, maybe you can remember who, who've claimed this, but, um, they claim to have had the first ever song available for digital download on the internet with Electric Barbarella. I swear hmm. I've heard another band make that claim recently that was a 90s band, or at least their Wikipedia page did, but I can't remember who it was. Yeah. Um, then they also released alternate mixes for the song. I don't know if those were like dance mixes or or just radio mixes or whatnot. Um, but there was one called the Dom T remix that was made available in the U S for 99 cents via a company called liquid audio. However, this pissed off a bunch of music retailers. Um, I'm guessing distributors and they yanked Medazzaland from distribution and, or refused to stock the album because they didn't like the fact that the, you could get one of the songs for free on the internet. So I'm curious yeah, if that hurt that the band. Well. Yeah. I mean, it was already impossible to get in the UK, and now you're closing down parts of the US market. Seems like And then the other themselves. thing is the, the video that they made for Electric Barbarella, which was kind of like the band with this electronic sex doll. They sent it to VH1 and MTV, not that they were as big of a force at that time. VH1 and MTV sent it back for changes, and by the time they made the changes, the single was already over. Yeah, I remember. I remember getting a fair amount of airplay though, because I definitely saw the video, and I so I'm not sure if it was a specialty show or what, but I it definitely got some airplay at least. So it was, yeah. was it all for naught? It was, yeah, it was re- kind of for naught. I remember. Yeah, I remember that song and that video. Uh, that definitely 
stuck out to me when I revisited this record. For um, the record, Aerosmith's Head First off Just Push Play was the first digitally downloadable song in 1994 through CompuServe. Was it a was it a sale or just a download? Uh, sounds like it was a download. Because this one is the first ever for purchase. Digital uh, purchase. It took 60 to 90 minutes to download the song. <laughs> <laughs> and you downloaded it onto a cassette. <laughs> wow. Onto a floppy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So the, the, the decade wraps up for Duran Duran with three additional releases. One in 1998, they released an album called night versions, which is a, a remix album from the earlier in their career. Um, I guess these were like maybe like 12 inch remixes from the eighties. Um, and then they put out greatest, which is, I think their second greatest hits release. I think decade was the first one that came out at the end of the eighties. And then this one obviously included some stuff from the nineties. And then they, in 99, they released a second remix album called strange behavior. Also in 99, they no longer were part of capital EMI. Which is why all of these three things got released. Right. Because Capital's mining the back catalog just to try and get any kind of cash they can out of the band as they kick them to the curb. So then they go sign with Hollywood Records, which was affiliated with Disney at the time, um, and put out in 2000 the album Pop Trash, and I think, Jay, this is around the time that we saw them at the Jermaine Amphitheater and the band Czar opened up for them, which makes yeah. sense because they were also on Hollywood Records. Yeah. Mm. What? 2000, 2001? Yeah. 2000. Was, yeah. I saw that tour in Cleveland. Totally. Okay. And I just remember um, Simon LeBond danced very oddly. <laughs> okay. I remember him being in, in very awkward way? as a dancer. Just odd, <laughs> odd body movements. Just... <laughs> I was surprised okay. you don't remember that. I don't remember that. Yeah. I remember being impressed with them live. I remember being impressed by the guitar player because I think on some of the records you sort of forget at times they have a guitar player, um, which live it becomes a huge part of the, the band. But no, I don't remember Simon LeBond's dance moves. No. All right. Sorry. Maybe, maybe there's some video people can check <laughs> out of Simon LeBond's awkward flailing. Um <laughs> So we hit the end of the decade. Obviously, there's trouble with uh, the band in terms of being leaving Capitol. They're only on Hollywood for one of their three-album deal. And then they get dropped from that. Pop Trash is the only album that ends up out of that deal. So let's go around. I, I Now, the band has continued. They have put out albums throughout the 2000s. Uh, I think they've totaled now like 17 albums or something like that or something in there. But they returned in 2004 with Astronaut and then in 2007 Red Carpet Massacre, which I remember being kind of a big deal when that came out um, because Timbaland uh, worked with the band on that one. There there were a lot of producers on that. But uh, Justin Timberlake was involved with that record. And there was definitely like this attempt at a resurgence of, of Duran Duran when that album came out. And then in 2010, All You Need Is Now came out, which was produced by uh, Mark Ronson. And then the last one is two years ago, Paper Gods came out. That was produced by 
Mark Ronson, and then Nile Rogers, who um, obviously has a history with the band. Curious what you guys think, even though the band has continued on, do you feel like the band survived the 90s? Or did the 90s end up taking the band down? Or possibly did the band take themselves down with some poor choices? Um, let's go around the room. The legacy of Duran Duran in the 90s. Annie, I'll start with you. See, that's it's interesting because I think that you, you could answer that question differently depending on the year that you were being asked it. So I think probably in the early 2000s, you know, you would say, oh, whatever, you know, Duran Duran's done. I mean, because they were basically, you know, a, a non-entity at that point. But now in hindsight, I really do think that the 90s really helped them survive and introduce them to an entirely new audience. Um, I mean, that's when I really found out about the band. I came to all their ladies, their 80s stuff after I kind of, you know, heard their 90s stuff. It was really like, yeah, this is really good stuff. So, I mean, I think it really and having them on MTV as well kind of really kept them in the spotlight. And, you know, it's almost like I feel like they almost kind of had to go through those little growing pains and try out different things and figure out what didn't work to kind of get to where they are now. Um, you know, and really kind of realize, hey, you know, this is our strength. You know, kind of the dance music, electro music, what we're doing now is what we're really good at. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like what it, it really is kind of like what you two did. I know we mentioned Octoon Baby earlier, but they kind of, you know, did some experimentation, got things out of their system and then were like, yeah, all right, here's here's what we're good at doing. And I mean, I saw the band last year and it was probably one of the best times I've ever seen them. Like they were just having a great time. They sounded great. It was a fantastic show. So, uh, yep, that's my take. Keith, what's your take on the 90s for Duran Duran? It's it's really hard to characterize it as a success, especially with the way that they they shed members and you know coming into the two thousands, pop trash was even more of a disaster than than Medazzaland as far as sales were concerned, and artistically as well. I think it's one of their worst records. But I also agree at the same time that the band I I sort of put them akin to is not U two, but more like Depeche Mode where they're still vital. They're still creative. They're still putting out new records. They're not totally a catalog band where I think a lot of other bands that had their biggest hits in the eighties, you see them now and they're just totally living on their catalog. Duran Duran aren't trying to do that. They're still trying to be creative. They're still the, the Mark Ronson record. All you need is now that's a real Duran Duran record. If, if you're a Duran Duran fan and you've never heard that record, it, pick it up, give it a listen because it, he does such a great job of updating that 80s sound and really making them sound like Duran Duran yet sound like something different, something new. Um, so I give them, I think they survived the nineties and I think they've still been able to continue to, to exist as a creative entity. And I give them a lot of credit for that. Chip, your thoughts. Uh, I don't feel like there's anything else I can say. I mean, you guys nailed it. I, I, I agree with both Keith and Annie's comments. Um, I don't know their history that well. I mean, I, I in-depth stuff, like when they were all doing side projects in the eighties and stuff, but, um, you know, I, I, I suppose at any point they could have broken up and all gone their separate ways. And so the fact that they're still around, still making great music, I, like I said, I agree with Annie and Keith that they, they, they survived the nineties and, and, um, with with some bumps and bruises and some ups and low, uh, ups and downs, but um, I don't think it was a total a total uh, failure in the '90s. They definitely put out some good music, and it and it paved the way towards 
allowing them to continue into today. Jay, do you have anything to add? Or are you on board with them surviving? I'm on board. I, I think um, the only thing I would add is, you know, had the 90s alternative thing not happened in like 91, 92, you probably would have got 10 more years of liberty. So <laughs> I think all things considered, I mean, um, Ordinary World was as about an unlikely abandoned song as you could have imagined at that time you know hitting if anybody told you in that year hey Duran Duran's gonna have a big hit this year I think everybody would have looked at you like you were nuts so they the fact that they put out some material at least had some quality songs on it um through the decade and emerged from the other side I think is a you know says it all they survived it yeah it you talk about how unlikely Ordinary World was. When Ordinary World peaked on the top singles chart, the, the other bands on the top singles chart at the time were Whitney Houston, Peebo Bryson, Shanice, Arrested Development, you know, Boys to Men, Naughty by Nature, and then Duran Duran's in there. You know, I, it was totally out of step with the time, yet when you listen to the album, it was totally in step with the time. It was just in step with you know, stuff that maybe wasn't that chart successful, mm. yet somehow they got a hit out of it. Well, all right. I was not expecting, based on first listening to Liberty, that they would have survived the 90s, but uh, you guys have made a compelling case that Duran Duran did, in fact, uh, survive the 90s. And I do want to check out the, I haven't listened to it, but the All You Need Is Now album from 2010 sounds interesting, so I'm going to hit my Spotify up tomorrow and, and give a listen just, to that. Just dial up Girl Panic. Listen to that song, and, and that's yeah, the that one is... that, I, on one hand, it's totally Duran Duran, yet on the other hand, it's got elements to it that you never thought you'd hear in a Duran Duran song. Cool. I'm going to do it. It's on my to-do list for tomorrow. Jay, you should do the same thing. I'm doing it right now, Tim. Okay. Don't do it right now. We're recording. <laughs> well, I have to And he told you to do it right now. Yeah. Well, Okay. We need to thank our guest, Jay. Keith Sawyer joining us from Arlington. DJ at... I got uh, all my Taylor straight, thank God. <laughs> DJ at WMBR. You can find him on the Twitter at Zaxxon25. Uh, Zaxxon in reference to the... Is that uh, the 80s uh, arcade game? I, I have a stand-up downstairs. Nice. Nice. Uh, nice. Chip Midnight, you can find him at Chip Midnight and, of course, at kidsinterviewbands.com. And then Annie Zaleski at Annie Zaleski, salon.com, Ultimate Classic Rock, Las Vegas Weekly. Want to uh, remind our listeners, you can go to iTunes and leave us positive feedback if you enjoyed this episode. If you didn't, don't leave us any feedback. And then... Uh, join us at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash dig me out. And, uh, you can join us at the 250 level to get a review after 12 months and you get bonus content. Uh, for this episode, it'll be, uh, probably Annie talking about her horrific plane experience. Uh, <laughs> that's, her, that'll be our bonus content. Um, dining tips in Montana. There you go. Dining <laughs> tips in Montana. Montana. Yes. Um, that's it. We did it. Pulled it in just at about 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, uh, as I had hoped. Good work, everybody. Um, That's it. For Jay, Annie, Chip, Keith, we're out. 
And we'll be back uh, next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. 